All right. I keep losing people. All right. Uh, good, uh, good evening. Good does, evening. Does, like, every, every table have a packet? Okay. All right. They're still, they're still running. They'll be done by the time you guys need to leave. And so most of that stuff, most of that stuff you're taking home. Uh, so this is not, uh, we're not going to get through all this because I'm not going to read most of it. Um, but there are things that I wanted to make sure you had as a reference. Um, because the truth is, a lot of that we're going to talk about in the Revelation study are things you're going to have to refer back to. Um, we're going to have to put appropriate fences upon how we study Revelation, because the truth is we bring a lot of baggage to it. Um, culturally, we bring a lot of assumptions as to uh, what we think, the questions that it's supposed to answer, the things that it's talking about. And uh, so we have to be real careful about bringing those things to the text and just let the text do the talking, and then we can appropriately react to that, okay? So some of the stuff uh, that I've given you, we're not going to cover in class, but I wanted to put in your hands so that as you read, we can try to do so uh, responsibly and kind of let the text guide what it is that we're actually taking away from Revelation as opposed to us um, using as a reference book for questions that we want answered, but that the text itself may not be actually trying to answer. Okay, so that's what a lot of this stuff is. Um, as a matter of fact, the first thing that you're going to find in your, in your packet is a copy of the book of Revelation, whole thing, uh, without, without chapter markers and, or verse indicators. Because the truth is, is that like, the original group of folks that would be receiving this uh, from our friend John uh, would not have had chapter headings and uh, verse markers, right? Those are, those are things that were added later. And so one of the things that I want to try to do is not lead some of our headings that you'll find in your Bibles to mislead sections. Um, we talked about this a little for you guys, you guys that went through kind of the end times pre-class. Um, we talked about this a little, but there are some things about chapter headings that I don't, that I don't necessarily trust or that I think mislead the story, cut things off where they shouldn't have. And the original writer didn't put a chapter heading in there. And so if we can try to read it cleanly, it'll keep us from saying, well, this action stopped and then this action started because chapters changed. And that's not really the case, right? It could be that the story just continued, um, which is how it would have been written. So that's, that's why I wanted to give you a copy of the book of Revelation. It's, it's the ESV, um, but it's a copy without uh, chapter headings or verse markers. Okay? So if you're going to read it, I would propose reading it that way and take it in in letter form as they would have. The, although the truth is they, uh, most of them would have heard it orally. Um, it depends. There's like various guesses as to how how well read uh, folks in this area would have been. Um, the optimistic side is about seventy percent literacy rate. Um, the normative side is probably closer to twenty or twenty-five. Okay. Most of the time, when you're passing letters, like we're talking about First and Second Peter or the Corinthians or like all the letters that Paul wrote, one or two folk guys are reading that. Everyone else is listening or hearing it orally. In fact, there's a guy that travels that performs Revelation that like does it from memory. And I thought that would have been really cool to kind of heard it orally and have someone speak to that. Uh, but he was in Georgia and it's pretty expensive uh, unless he's like coming through town and he was not coming through town. <laughs> so uh, I was, yeah, that, that fell outside of the copies. That's in our budget. Uh, oral Revelation, man. He's not going to make it. <laughs> okay. So um, guidelines for the class. So the cl- you get a lot more out of the class. I promise you, you get a lot more out of the class if you read it if you read the stuff that we're going to talk about. So um, if I say we're going to study a section of Revelation, read it beforehand. Um, here's, here's where, if there's a fail in this class, and I mean for you personally, <laughs> if there's a fail in this class, it will be we end up 10 years from now and you're back to having no idea what's in Revelation. And the truth is that the way that will happen, even if you can get your bones here every week and listen to me blather on about it, is if you don't connect with it outside of me talking. 
Okay, so I mean, you'll have a chance to to we'll take we'll do questions and we'll have a chance to interact. We have a lot to cover. Six weeks, I think, is optimistic, but it's hard to hold people for seven. I will probably use every minute plus a few of every night that we're here to try to give you the best possible experience reading Revelation, and then I will constantly be dumping links or book suggestions or things that you can dig into later on because um, I don't want I don't want you to get ten ten years out and then be completely lost again because the book is beautiful if we can understand it correctly if we approach it from um, what I would consider to be the, a safe perspective, okay? Um, so just um, engage in the stuff. If I, if I give you some stuff to read, do your best to read it. Um, please ask questions um, and, and just make sure you're kind of engaging the material and then it'll be something that you won't lose after 10 years because um, having sat through six weeks of me talking at you, if you've lost it 10 years later, that's a real bummer, okay? You put all the work in. So, um, so try, to, try to read along um, and try to ask questions and kind of interact to what's going on in class and you'll get the most out of it. Guidelines in general for the class, um, we'll try to start at 6.30. I will try to be done by 8. Uh, if you went through the other classes of mine, we know that's probably an iffy circumstance. I, I, we will go absolutely no later than 8.30. Okay, and if I hit 8:30, like the third time I hit 8:30, someone is allowed to physically remove me. Okay, so I'll do my best to make that an exception, not a rule. Uh, Boova, you're the 8:30 man. Okay, your job is to make sure I don't go wildly over 8:30 uh, or 8 o'clock and, and post 8:30 every week. Uh, also, so as we approach the text, here's what I want to make sure we do, and here's what here's my promise to you: um, is that whenever we're approaching to study a book of the Bible, our job is to let the text change us. Okay. Um, like I said, when we, when we started, you know, we bring some thir- certain things to Revelation, some expectations of the questions we want to answer. One of the things we're going to have to try to fight through is, are we asking the right types of questions? There's also some things that I believe that I have, are completely on the table from my perspective. I'm okay to be completely wrong where Scripture is right. All right? So the things that I come into this class thinking, and I do think things, right? Like, I'm, like after some study and some inquiry and, and trying to figure out the right things, I have certain things that I believe. But Scripture is fully capable of changing me, um, and I want it to. And I also want my community to do that, okay? I'm here, this happened during the end times class. I learned some things during our discussions in the end times class. I believe slightly different things than I did when I started that class, because I think God provides Scripture to be able to reveal him, himself, his character to me or to us as a church community. And he provides community around us to be able to shape those things. Okay? So I fully expect to learn something from this class from you. So as we go through, my, it's, it's, I, am, I am fully hopeful that scripture will continue to change me and that you guys as my community will continue to change me as well. And I would ask that same thing of you, is that as we approach this thing, um, let's let the text say what it says. And then let's deal with the, what God is saying on those terms and say, if this is true, and maybe there's another idea in another book somewhere or something, other part of scripture, and we say, how can these both be true? That's the right question. Okay, the wrong question is to say, eh, I don't really care for that. Maybe I don't believe that. Maybe that's not the thing that I'm going to follow. Or maybe I believe this more than I believe this. The hardest tension for a Christian is trying to take these big concepts and say, these are both true. These are both accurate reflections of God. And the truth is, where we have, the reason we have trouble with that is because we don't work that way. We don't really hold two giant ideas together in tandem well. We tend to be, uh, what's, a, what's a good comparison? Uh, uh, faith, faith and works is probably a good idea, right? Like either I don't have to do anything because God is faithful and, and I, it requires no work of mine. I can sit on my butt, which is not the discussion of Scripture, 
Or it says, I have to prove to God that I am good and demonstrate to him my righteousness, and there is nothing that he does to have to, to move that needle, and that's also a bold-faced lie, right? So the t- two things with Scripture that would generally bear out for me was, uh, I cannot reconcile myself to God without his work. Scripture also continues, in fact, the, the reference of the whole New Testament is, here's how you're supposed to live, right? So I have to hold both of those in tandem, all right? So that's, that's what I'm saying as we approach Scripture is, let's call it true, and then let's deal with the truth of what those things are and just be, make sure that we're allowing Scripture and community to kind of shape and change what it is that we believe. That makes sense? And I would, so I would ask that of you uh, as we go through the class. Uh, any questions for me before we... Let's <laughs> see, just the introduction. Anybody got to pee or anything? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so let's... Um, I, I did try to make this in the order of the stuff I'm going to talk to, so I'm actually going to go through the same packet you guys have. Um, so you can skip through all the, uh, all the printing of Revelation. And we're going to start with uh, page 15, which is, Who is John? <laughs> Trying to find pictures of things that are supposed to go in Revelation is a dangerous practice. I don't know if you've ever... Oh, shoot, that reminds me, rule number two. No Googling Revelation answers. <laughs> no. No Googling Revelation answers. If you have a particular question and say, I want to know more about this... Please come ask me, and I will try to give you uh, references um, to discuss that. And when I say give you references, I don't necessarily mean references that I think have the right angle on it. I have plenty of references of people that I completely disagree with, but that are better references than freelance Googling revelation items. Okay? None of that freelance Googling stuff. Stay out of those. That's that's a bad idea. Uh, which, Which reminds me, so here's the other thing. Um, when I say I have other references, there are extremely wise people who love Jesus that will disagree with what I think Revelation is talking about. Okay? They still love Jesus. They're still wise people. I still love them. Okay? They probably still love me, depending on who they are. <laughs> There's probably a group of them that don't. Okay? So, um, I'm not going to ask that you, that you agree with me. That's not the point of Revelation class. Like the, we're going we're to study the scripture. You're going to come to what we believe is, is correct. Okay? You do not have to agree with me. Um, but if you don't agree with me, and we're going to talk about it in class, like, you're going to have to show why. Not just, hey, I just disagree with that. I think God's going to do this. Well, I mean, that's great. But like, why do you think that? That's, that's the scripture's going to change us type of thing, is there has to be some backing somewhere, okay? So that's where we're going to start from a, um, from a perspective. There's, there's plenty of varying perspectives of revelation by wise people that love Jesus, and we will agree to that. Um, and so let's talk about it, though, in those terms, not just, I, I think this is going to happen. Well, it's, it's good, but we need to talk about that, okay? All right, John. John, who is John? Um, so the book of Revelation, so um, I'm going to have to digress a ton because there's always like different parts of Revelation where uh, there are points of disagreement. For our purposes, we're going to call the dating of the book of Revelation to somewhere between 90 and 95. Um, I would say academia has moved over the last 10, 20 years to try to date um, Revelation earlier, uh, somewhere pre-70. Why would someone target, like what's, what's 80, 70 that they would target? Yeah. The destruction of the temple. Okay, so with the types of things that John is talking about, generally I don't, we're not going to give the book away by saying it's a source of encouragement or uh, confidence that God otherwise has things under control. And so they say, well, because of that, what big thing might have impacted these folks? Destruction of the temple. Okay, um, I would say their strongest argument for the uh, 80, 90 to 95 would be there's a church historian, uh, Irenaeus. He said it was written in the latter years of the Roman emperor Domitian. That would have been 95. 95. Domitian, I think, was dead in 96. 
Okay? Um, I, I've seen a lot of discussion where you could find other ways that the text might help somebody. And so that's why they pre-70 it. Um, I think the, the evidence from, like, from the church fathers is, is hard to debate from that perspective. And so I generally fall with a 90-95. Um, and so that's the premise we're going to move with the class. Like I said, there are, there are wise people that would believe other than that. I don't think it's going to change. There's a few things that it might impact from how we read this, but not a ton. Okay? Um, but that, that would be my general perspective that we're 90-95. It was written by John. This is the same John that wrote Book of John. Okay? First John, Second John. Third John, okay, same guy. Um, he was the leader of the church in the city of Ephesus. He, so the, the, the general direction uh, of what happened, uh, and we talked about this a little bit in the end times class, is, is the diaspora. You saw the Jews kind of disperse from um, Jerusalem and be spread out. And that included the disciples. And so uh, eventually what happens is you see quite a few of them end up in Ephesus. And this includes John and Jesus' mother Mary. In fact, there's a church. Have you been there? Did you go to Ephesus, Dave Herrick? Um, so, like, you can go, it's, again, debatable whether this is actually a spot, but, like, where Mary would have lived in Ephesus. Um, we know John was taking care of Mary, that uh, interaction on the cross where Jesus says, this is your, this is your mother, this is your son. Um, and so they went to Ephesus, and John kind of pastored churches and built churches from there um, in that area and in the area of the rest of Asia Minor. John is writing in time. He's, he's the oldest apostle um, he's, he is the only guy that isn't martyred. So like all the rest of the 12 apostles and let's, um, we'll ignore Judas. Um, but the, the replacement and everybody else, um, is martyred, um, in generally horrendous ways, thrown off temples, uh, stabbed in hearts, set on fire, heads chopped off, things of this nature. Um, John, John really hosed a couple guys off. Um, they decided that they were going to boil him in oil in the Colosseum, like the Roman, when you think Roman Colosseum, that's this joint. And so they get the big vat of oil and they get it all fired up and they go to dip him in there and they dip and nothing happens. And he's not uh, consumed by boiling oil. He comes out and uh, it's reported that uh, everybody in the Colosseum became Christians that day because they attempted to boil a man alive and completely failed. That's not the only Christian story that has uh, themes like that. There's the uh, martyrdom of a man named Polycarp, which is also in your packet. Um, and a similar thing happens to him. So anyway, uh, the problem is, is if a guy believes a certain thing that is uh, against the current government that's in place and you attempt to kill him and he does not die, that's a very difficult problem because you could keep trying to kill him, but the more times you do that, it again makes your story a little bit harder that the things he believes is not true. And so exile was the right answer, and they put him on an isle called Patmos. And uh, he then, uh, this, that's when this uh, revelation is uh, generally thought to have been pinned uh, to some of the churches in Asia Minor when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos is a, is a crappy island. Uh, it's very dry, barren, like uh, there's prisoners there. Uh, like he wasn't the only guy there. Um, it's got a cool view of the, of the bay and stuff, but otherwise it's kind of a junk of an island. So it was attempted to punish John. Uh, he didn't seem to take that uh, uh, with that much of a problem. So, uh, so anyway, that's John's background, though. So you recognize by the time that he's writing something like this, all the other, everybody else is dead. Okay, all the other leaders of the church um, that he would have started with have died. He's an old man by now. Um, he, was, he was relatively young when uh, Jesus was alive. But, I mean, if we're in 90, he's probably, you know, that old. He's probably 85, 90 years old by this time. And so he's an old man um, and, he, and the last living uh, disciple or apostle. Okay, so uh, that's who's, who's writing the book. Let's move on to the next page. I, did, I attempted some fill-ins. That's generally not my deal, but I'm trying to branch out. Okay, if you all dig on fill-ins. <laughs> um, so 
the, the first, uh, the description that we have is John to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So let's look, um, if anybody brought a Bible, let's see if we can fill these in, or the seven churches that John is talking about. Uh, let's start in Revelation 1.11. Buva, what do you got? Uh, say, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus. This is where 1.11 is the cheat verse because it has everybody. And then there's a secondary verse where you can look them up individually. But you might as well use the cheat verse. So we have Ephesus. Uh, Smyrna. Smyrna. Pergamum. Pergamum. Thyatira. Thyatira. Thyatira, Good. Sardis. Sardis. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And Laodicea. Those are our seven churches. In case you're too lazy to look them up, I provided two maps of which there are biblical-sounding cities in there. You probably got a pretty good shot of making the list. The middle map I gave just so you have a rough idea of, um, of where it's at modern day. So this is on the western edge of Turkey, of modern-day Turkey, is where, these, uh, is where these would be at. You see where, where Patmos is at. That's kind of the spot of the island. And then um, Smyrna is just a little bit to the west of Athens, Greece. And then it goes kind of up in a, a bit of a horseshoe pattern. And then if you look down in that same map, that Google Earth map, uh, to, in the middle to the right, you're going to see modern-day Damascus, uh, Beirut, Lebanon, Syria, that kind of stuff. Uh, the only thing I'd ask you to ignore in that map is uh, the supposed location of Armageddon. I'm going to give you a heads up now. That is not a legit place. You can go ahead and cross that off. The Google map guy who made the biblical city markers was pretty excited about that. I just think he's a little bit overzealous in the marking of Armageddon. That's going to be the, one of the biggest disappointments in the book. You're going to expect some kind of big deals at the Armageddon. That word means Mount Megiddo, and there's not a mountain there. There's no such thing as the Mount Megiddo. See, now what are you going to do? It's going to throw your life into a tizzy. I expected an Armageddon, John. It's even, it's a valley. There's, a, there's like a valley Megiddo. Yeah. It's like the opposite of a mountain. <laughs> yeah. See? See, culturally, we put so much into that. <laughs> what are we going to do? All right. So, um, so here's, here's the reason I even bothered to have you write down those, those cities. They're real churches. Okay? Real cities, real churches, real places that Pastor John is writing to. Okay? So that means this, this is a letter that John is writing to legit people, real folks at that time, right? 90 AD. So our questions are, what does a letter from John mean to these churches? And we're gonna, I think we're going to dig into this more as we start to understand what's going on around them. But like, if you're waiting for word from the last living apostle, what does this mean to them? Okay, um, What's going on around them? What, what would they want to hear? What do they need to hear from Pastor John, who would have part of planting these churches and has a word from them as he sits in exile, likely to die? He actually does get off Patmos and then dies. I don't know how old the guy lived, um, but he gets off there. But like, what, what would they want to hear? And one of the big things to point out is that we approach studying the book of Revelation, we need to acknowledge that it was written to a specific people at a specific time. Okay, so if our interpretation of this letter, of this book, results in circumstances and outcomes that look exclusively like our own and not at all theirs, it should give us pause. Okay? We need to consider if what we're looking for Revelation is to answer only questions that would make sense in our time, and it would mean absolutely nothing to them, what does that make John? If your pastor said, hey, I'm going to send you a letter, and I got a lot of really great information for you in chapters 2 and 3, eventually when they put the chapter markers in, 
Okay? And then basically the rest of the book is not for you at all. It's for somebody 2,000 years from now, 2,500 years from now. You're very welcome. Right? So that's, that's, it needs to give us pause. I'm not saying it can't speak to both. One of the things that we're going to find in the book of Revelation is that John's speaking on multiple planes, multiple levels. Symbols will do that. It's heavily symbolic language, and it's talking about two or three things. That's where the fun wrestling with Revelation is. How do we, how do we think about these symbols correctly? Okay? But we're going to pervert them if we take them out of a first century person's hands and say they belong to us. And say they must mean this. This is why, and I'll just give you a heads up of where we're going here. Like, you're not going to be able to convince me that part of Revelation describes Apache helicopters. Because that means nothing, nothing to the Christian believer in Smyrna who is under some sort of persecution by a Roman government. Or, which is more likely, is being seduced into a Roman society. Okay? What does that helicopter mean to them? Nothing. Okay, that's that's where we have to be careful. We have to be careful about yanking out of that guy's hands and saying this was definitely for me and not for you at all. That's where we have to be careful. Okay, moving on. Um, What's going on at the time? Let's see if we can kind of give a background of where these folks are at. Um, John introduces, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Uh, Just a hint for later on, when we see the word tribulation, we have a certain connotation that we think that exists in. John seems to think that he's part of it. We've got to be careful where we yank that in time, right? Okay. So, um, I kind of like this. Uh, I I tried to put some some quotes uh, from some realistic scholars so that you have some sort of legit academia in your packet. Uh, and it says, in a time of crisis, the church was entering a period of crucial conflict between the forces of evil, epitomized by Rome, and the forces of good found in the vindicated Lord of the church. To meet this situation, John exhorts his hearers to be steadfast in faith, and he fortifies their courage by revealing the ultimate destruction of the powers of evil and the perfect consummation of the Christian hope in the establishment of the kingdom of God. Do you know where that quote's from? Uh, yeah, that's from uh, Lowry. Uh, all right, so more fill-ins. You love this, Buva? You got to love this. This is for you. I say Buva loves fill-ins. I'm going to put them. This is for you. Thanks. Fill it in. I like fill-ins. Okay. Awesome. I feel good. <laughs> Kings of, okay, here we go. First fill-in. Um, so we're going to identify some of the conflict that's going on uh, for the folks that are reading this, uh, reading this. The first conflict is ultimately the, king, the conflict between God and Satan. Okay? It's a perennial conflict. It shows up all the time. It's still going on here. One of the things that I think Revelation is going to do for us is it's going to start to thin the veil a little bit between our understanding of what goes on the earth and what goes on in the heavens, okay, or in the spiritual realm. We've become, well, I don't, let me not say we, let me say I. I have become, I think, um, a little bit jaded to the thought of how much the things we do in heaven interact with what's going on, or things we do on earth interact with the things going on in heaven and vice versa. And I think that's a, full, that's a problem. I think that's a false assumption on my part. Though Revelation talks as if there is power in prayer. Revelation talks, or what was the, what was the story? It was, in, it was in Daniel about the guy who was, uh, he was good, supposed to bring the word to Daniel and he got held up uh, trying to deliver this, this word of information to Daniel for, was it three weeks? Yeah, yeah three weeks. Fighting the, fighting the king of Persia or something? Yeah. yeah. The prince of Persia, the prince held of Persia. him in place for three, three, three months. months. Yeah. It was like delayed. There's like a legit spiritual ba- battle that's keeping the word that God sent out to give to Daniel from arriving where it was supposed to. 
Now, I, I can, I can kind of chop that off and say I don't have to deal with that. And here's the deal. Don't, you don't start a church on the foundation of, of spiritual delay, okay? But, like, it's still a, there's something in the Bible that's communicating spiritual interaction with what's going on on earth. It's why our prayers mean something. It's why, like, it, we're to understand kind of this heavy battle that we feel like very, very tiny participants in. But, but when, when God is up in heaven and, and he's talking about what are those on the altar and said these are the prayers of the saints, this is God listening to what it is that we're praying for and responding to it. If, if Revelation reflects that we are interacting with what's going on, right, that has to change how I see those things. It has to change how I understand what, my, what prayer does and what the interaction between heaven and earth, okay? Uh, so that, con- that conflict continues. I'm not going to read through all this scripture, um, but I- I've just provided you some stuff to give you a backing of what I'm talking about, um, I do, like the, I do like the Matthew part, though. Um, this is when, when Jesus is, uh, is talking, and he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the reason I provide that quote. Was Jesus casting out demons? By the Spirit of God. Yes, He was. Then the kingdom of God has come upon them. Okay? It, should, it reorients, we're going to run into this in some of our Revelation discussion, it reorients our understanding of kingdom. Okay? If, if we've put all our, all our eggs in the, the kingdom isn't here yet, it's in this eventual basket that will show up in a thousand, during a thousand year time frame, what do we do with Jesus talking about as if the kingdom is here? And John the Baptist talking about as if the kingdom is here. We have to be able to deal with our understanding of kingdom here. Um, Okay, that's our first set of conflicts. Uh, God and Satan, that's always showing up. Second, second conflict. Christians and Jews. Uh, which is interesting because um, most of the Christians are Jews. That's the deal. That's, they became Christians because they were Jews. <laughs> and then they believed Jesus. Um, all, the, all the disciples, yes? Yeah, when you say Jews, do you mean ethnically, culturally, or religiously Jews? Uh, so both. I gave you three options. <laughs> I'll take all three. All right. For 200. <laughs> I'll take all three. <laughs> um, so here's the deal. This, this isn't a surprise outside of... Go ahead. So then where's the separation? Yeah, like John, for example, he's Jewish from uh, ethnicity and he's Christian. Right. Jesus. Well, so basically think uh, people that identify as Jewish but are not Christians. Like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to make a clear distinction that because the truth was... Non-Christian Jews versus Christians... So you actually, have a, you actually have multiple interactions here. So this, this actually becomes a little bit complicated because you have conflict between um, Jews that didn't accept Jesus, right? Like ethnic Jews, cultural Jews um, who, who didn't accept Jesus, uh, antagonists through uh, the book of Acts uh, with Jesus during his... Like the truth was is that the Jews contributed to the death of Christ, right? They couldn't kill him because Roman law wouldn't allow them. They certainly turned him over. If, you, um, if we look here, Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. Um, he took water and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Okay? So this is the group that is like antagonists against Jesus. They will continue to do so in the book of Acts. But the, the, the truth is, is that, yeah, you do have ethnic Jews that are following Christ. Jesus was one of them. Right? The disciples were all, were all that. Okay? Um, you see uh, in, in Acts, it's the Jews that, uh, that stoned Stephen. Paul okay, is, is part of that, um, the antagonism against Christianity. And um, you also, it, it continues, if we look in Acts 7, 
Um, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at them. Uh, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is the Jews against uh, Saul. And the witnesses laid down their garments. At the, oh, sorry, this is, not, this is still the story of, uh, of Stephen. Yeah, that's not the one I wanted. Hold on. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, flip the page. Here, here's, that's what I was looking for in Acts 14. So now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believes, believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So why, are the, why is there conflict with the Jews? Well, there's, there's a number of reasons. One, they rejected Christ. Okay? Um, they simply did not believe he was who he says he was. Um, if you take the, the Jewish elite's description of why they want Jesus dead, it's, we're simply not going to risk our relationship with the Roman government because Jesus is going to spout at the mouth and be someone that, who he's not. Now, they're ignoring some things, obviously, but like, that's, that's what comes to head there. Um, but where, also, look at where the Christians are going. Now, at Iconium, they enter together in the Jewish synagogue. Okay, that's offensive. <laughs> right? Like, were they, were they taking the, the story of Jesus? Were they taking the truth of Christ, but into the synagogue? Now, that makes a lot of sense if you're, if you're them. If you're Paul, and like, you're reasoning from the scriptures, and we say scriptures, right? When the New Testament is referring to scriptures, what are they referring to? The Old Testament. Yeah, it's the Old Testament. Can we, can we lead someone to Christ with only the Old Testament? It's a good question. We should. That's what, that's what they're doing, right? Can I practically do that? that's iffy. That's iffy. Which means I probably need to, I need to understand my Old Testament a little bit better. Okay? Um, one, of the, one of the issues that we run into, even as a belief system, a lot of times you hear people say, hey, we're, we're New Testament people. And what they mean is that we're not bound by the law of the Old Testament, but like, I can't separate myself from the story of God, which is our Old Testament. And here's the deal. If we, if we disassociate Revelation from the Old Testament, we're going to be completely lost. There's, there's 10 pages of boring references at the end of your first week's packet, which is simply going verse by verse through Revelation and showing you potential um, references in the Old Testament that might apply to how we understand that verse. Okay? There, in fact, there are more um, quotes, there are more references to the Old Testament in Revelation than there are verses. Okay? Which means if we don't have our Old Testament down, we can yank stuff out of context because the Old Testament is part of our context. It's John's context. Okay? And it, go ahead. So are we talking about Pharisaical Jews? Pharise- Pharisees? Not always. Time? I mean, yes. Yeah, where the conflict is? The, the is Sadducees kind of went with the temple, so at that point they would be nullified. Uh, if they're in the synagogues, then yeah, Pharisees are probably your dominant force at this point. They're not the only, like, um, it wouldn't. It doesn't have to be the Pharisees themselves that are doing all these things. Um, but right, but Herrick's right. If it's in the synagogue, they're the impact leadership structure, yeah. especially out in the Greek provinces. So the Jews that are rejecting Christ's message are more in line with with that side, with that side of the leadership than than looking to Christ as a fulfillment of the law. Well, I think that's true about the Pharisees, but um, I, you know, but part of the destruction of the temple is you're is you're still surrounded by those. The Sadducees were the temple folk, right? Um, they still rejected Jesus. It doesn't. Um, a lot of what Acts is describing about the interaction with Christians, because it's happening in synagogues, yes, that would have to be Pharisee influenced. Um, so I think that's a lot of what the Bible describes. Would it be exclusive to them, like outside of the realm of the Sadducees? I don't think that's right. But I think so the more political than it is uh, law and the prophets. Then, well, so this continues even after 
even after the, the relationship between the Jews and the Roman government becomes very sticky, uh, much worse than it already was, this continues. So what they're, they're concerned about, for a while, Christianity was still considered a sect of Judaism. Right? So as far as the Romans were concerned, like this is just, these are Jews, this is just kind of a sect of Judaism, and Christianity is um, buffering up against that. And frankly, they're a little bit more brazen with what they're not willing to do to be um, consistent with um, the, the Roman society. And the Jews were willing to play ball a little bit. Um, and so what, what was happening was, is the stuff that, that the Christians were doing to offend the Roman government was landing on Jews, and they didn't like it. Understandably, right? Like they're trying to play ball, and the Christians are just like, "No, we won't worship that. No, no, we're not going to." And then the, the poor Jew who thinks that the, the Christians and, the, and uh, Jews are connected, um, that that will land on him, and they're pretty upset about that. Um, plus, you know, what the the things that they're claiming about Jesus, if they're not true, are blasphemous, and so they're rightfully un, like angered if they're right. Um, they just don't. They just don't happen to be. Uh, okay, so, so we, we still have this, this underlying conflict between Jews and, uh, and Christians, and you'll see this, uh, I pointed out a couple verses in Revelation, where Jesus um, does say, uh, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Like, that, that's a specific reference, right? Like, that's, that's not offensive to a Gentile, to call him synagogue of Satan. That's, that's a Jewish, that's offensive Jewish reference. Um, I'm not going to talk through this today, but I did provide... Um, kind of a sidebar on your right-hand side about who is, who is Israel, um, this very much impacts some of your interpretation of the latter part of the book. Okay? Who are we, uh, like, um, is Israel considered to be, like, a remnant of um, the Jews, basically, um, who eventually come to, come to Christ? Um, or is it basically everybody? Are you, a, are you a people of God? So I would fall on the people of God camp. The Jews, uh, Israel has always been God's people. The definition of who God's people are um, continues to expand under Christ. Okay? So, like, it's not just your ethnicity. Um, it is, or do you follow Jesus? You're a people of God. And Paul seems to treat that Israel, that's how he defines it. Okay? So the stuff on the right is kind of how, where I would come to the conclusion of um, people of God are, when he says Israel, he means people of God, and that means everybody. Okay? But just know that will um, uh, prime the, especially the premillennialism will, um, and the thousand-year reign of Christ. Um, a lot of ba- what's baked into that is the assumption that Israel is separate, and so we need to deal with Israel separately. Um, that's why there's a reinstitution of a temple. That's why they're continuing to do sacrifices. And if you remember during our end times class, one of the things that I said you're going to have to be careful with to hold in tandem was if I, what I'm saying is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient. To say that we have to deal with the Jews differently, that they have, we have to reinstitute a temple, and that we have to sacrifice what? What exactly are you sacrificing that's not Jesus? Right? But that, that's one of the things that you have to believe to be able to hold that millennial view. Okay? So we just, but hold that in tandem. Just know that like, regardless of how you read Revelation, we have to accept what Christ did on the cross and say, how can I think of both of these things? But the, how those come together is a lot of times we'll say, well, if you have this, this remnant of what is actually Israel, God will not abandon his people. And so when the, when the church is raptured, again, listen to our end time stuff about that, um, it will leave a thousand year reign of Christ in which you will saw the reinstitution of sacrifices and the rebuilding of the temple, and that's how you will deal with Jews, the remnants of the Jews. Okay? I think that's, that's a wrong definition of who Israel is. I think that Paul doesn't allow us to continue to think that, but that's kind of the trajectory. Smart people, love Jesus, think differently on that, but like, that's the trajectory for who is Israel. Okay? So I put that on your sidebar. Uh, all right, more conflict. More conflict. Uh, this would be Christians and Rome. Oh, we got plenty of time. 
This is going to be fine. Christians in Rome. Um, I have a clock that's potentially 10 minutes slow. <laughs> Prepared for everything. Move on. <laughs> uh, all right, so Christians in Rome. So these are interesting. There's there are many accusations coming around about the Christians. So uh, let me tell you why there's um, the source of some of this conflict. So uh, Rome does not have a division of church and state. That's, a, that's a, not a thing. Okay, that's a thing that we do. That's not a thing that they do. In fact, most ancient cultures don't make that type of distinction. As far as Rome is concerned, um, the people that are ruling are ruling because that's who the gods sent. Okay? Or they're, they're um, from the lineage of the gods. Um, so, so the thing is, what they expect is, is they expect you to show fealty to that. Um, the, the Roman like, deity system was interesting. They had their own gods. But the easiest way to get people to kind of come into your empire was to not fight with them about those types of things. So you come in physically, you kind of bully them around for a while and say, look, why don't you just join us? We'll give you citizenship. Uh, maybe we'll put your face on a coin uh, for your leader. And uh, yeah, yeah, your gods are gods too, definitely. You have to worship our gods, but we'll take yours. Okay? That's how you control people. Um, you control people by changing the currency. You control people by educating them. A lot of the th- stuff that Rome would do is they would go out into, as they continue to expand their empire, they would run into, as far as they were concerned, uneducated people. Okay? And so how do you get them to your way of thinking? You offer them education. And so Rome expanded pretty quickly and fairly easily. Not a lot of bloodshed. They targeted leaders. That's why Jesus is crucified, right? Leader. They don't kill everybody in a room. They pick the leader, they kill him, and they hang him on a cross so everyone can see that that's the guy we killed and we'll do the same thing to you. Okay, they're smart. Rome's smart. That's why they were able to grow as big as they were. Okay? So, but one of the things they expected was in public, they don't care about your private faith. Okay? What you believe in your own mind, they, they could really care less about. Like, we're really concerned about that type of thing. I want to be able to do my private faith, and really what we mean is we want to do our private stuff out in public, show everybody. Okay? That's what we get all in the hussy about. Right? But they say, we don't care what you do, but like, when it's time to bow to the emperor, you do that. You're going to do it. And everyone's going to do it. And then you believe what you want when you're not around. Okay? It was, they're very much uh, invested in the show of your fealty to, the, to Rome. Okay, um, most places, most peoples just agreed to this because it didn't seem like a big deal. Okay, this is one of the bargains the Jews struck um, was that they would say, "Look, we can't uh, we can't pray to the Roman gods, but we'll pray for the emperor." Does that work? And they're like, "Okay." <laughs> okay, so they kind of made a bargain. We'll we'll pray for for the emperor, and that's what we'll do, and, and we'll work with that. Christians, on the other hand, um, they just simply wouldn't partake in this. Rome expected people to bow down to statues of the emperor. Um, there's, there's a few emperors that uh, decided that they were gods, and that made things worse. Um, this is the imperial cult. Okay, if you ever heard that phrase, that's what this means, is that the emperor is being worshipped as a god. Um, and so they said, look, you're going to bow down to this thing, uh, you're gonna, and, and that's what you're going to do. And the Christians said, no, no we're not going to do that. And they, they simply wouldn't accommodate. And so they were a big thorn in Rome's side. Okay? Um, one of the things we've got to be careful of is, like, I'm going to talk about Christian persecution, um, and it does happen, okay? But there's not a lot of evidence that it's widespread, okay? So sometimes we want to talk about, like, the, like the Christians were persecuted. That's true, okay? Um, but it's not like there was systemic elimination of Christians in the first and second centuries, okay? Third century, yes. Okay, first and second centuries, no. Some were killed, yes. 
Um, again, it was primary leadership and certain pockets. Ne- like Nero will do this. Um, we'll, we'll basically pick the Christians out and then start trouble. Domitian will do this. Um, but it's not widespread. It's not like there were hatchets running in the neighborhoods after Christians. That's, that's false. We can't, o- we can't over-discuss um, as if it's worse than it was. It was still bad. Okay? But it's, it wasn't systemic. They dealt with it as a problem, as like an upright. Think of it as uprisings. When it became a problem, they dealt with it as a problem. Otherwise, they pretty much let it lie, unless you ran into Christians who were openly defying Rome, and other people were seeing it, and then it became an issue. Okay? Okay, so let's look at some of the accusations um, <laughs> between Christians and Rome. So the first was cannibalism. Cannibalism. When you say, remember Jesus, and we're going to eat his body and drink his blood, they say... Those Christians are cannibals. Okay? So they got the charge of cannibalism. Um, second thing was incest. Incest. You call everybody you met brother or sister? <laughs> Your wife, as an example? <laughs> okay? Um, so that's, here's the thing. Not, there's not proof of these things. The, Rome's not saying we have proof of these things. They just say, I know that that man lives with that woman and he calls her sister. Or I know this woman lives with that man and he calls her brother. Okay? So incest was one of the accusations of Christianity because of uh, some of the things that are kind of baked in how we refer to each other or the things that we do. Those are some of the accusations. Uh, and I said conflict with the imperial cult. Um, so if you flip to the next page, um, there is a letter that I included for you. I'm going to read just a little bit of this. This was a letter from a, uh, a man named Pliny. Uh, if you're uh, prone to distinctions, there is a Pliny the Younger and Pliny the Elder. This is Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Elder was his uncle. And I actually have a quote from Pliny the Elder a little bit, uh, a little bit later on. But um, he ruled over a, a section, and uh, he was basically said, I don't know what to do. Uh, I want to make sure I'm do handling these Christians correctly. So he writes to the emperor, uh, Emperor Trajan at the time. And this happens in 120 AD, so I would say this is roughly 25 years after John has written the, book or, uh, the letter of Revelation. Okay? So it says, It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name, are to be punished. So if he calls himself a Christian, but otherwise is kind of bound to the emperor, is that, is that cool? Or uh, simply because he says, I'm a Christian, is that enough? Can I punish him? Um, meanwhile, in the case of those who were, who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. I like that. I, I, I read this uh, a couple weeks ago, and I thought, I hope that I would be able to be accused of that. Hey, that guy's stubborn and obstinate when I'm talking about Jesus and asked him to recant. I'm like, yes, that's me. Do as you will. Uh, there are others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Um, so soon accusations spread, as usually happens. Here he's concerned that um, uh, once you find out the Christians are being punished, people who otherwise hate another guy are be like, yeah, Chuck's a Christian. <laughs> Get him. <laughs> so like, that's one of the things he's concerned about. Uh, 
So he says, uh, an anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, that's Chuck, uh, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods and words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with the statues of the gods, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these I thought should be discharged." Others named by the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been but had ceased to be some three years before, others many years, some as much as 25 years before. Maybe something that John was concerned about. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. Um, so th- th- that's his question. So like, it's, it's, even though it's not systemic, it's there, okay, um, that they're going through this. Here's Trajan's response to Pliny the Younger. He says, you observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. (laughs) I like that word, repentance. It's not a Bible word. It's an everybody word. But an honestly posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. Okay? Not systemic. Still there, though. Still there. Um, I gave you a, a quick timeline of the Roman emperors in early Christianity. Um, and what uh, some of these references are important. So, Augustus Caesar. This, anybody see the... Um, oh, shoot. What am I thinking of? The Night at the Museum? You guys seen the night of the museum? Yeah, Octavius, that's him. Okay, that's our same guy. Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus is also Octavian, Octavius. That's our man. Um, he's the first Roman emperor. He takes uh, after Julius Caesar, uh, who was his uncle. And so he's the, the first Roman emperor by most people's counts. Um, you see Tiberius, he's, that's a Bible man. Uh, he's the, the, the emperor at the time of the census for Jesus. Uh, Caligula, have you guys heard that name? Okay, don't be Googling Caligula. Well, put decent filters on your internet. Caligula was a nasty man, okay, a very nasty man. Um, he was the first guy to proclaim himself a god. So here's the deal. What would happen was the Roman emperors would generally, um, they would accept, Augustus, Augustus Caesar does this, he accepts the honorific title of son of God, okay? Because at the time Julius Caesar dies, they say, well, he was a god. He was, he was descended from Romulus, who was um, the, the first, the, I don't know, the person that started Rome, uh, well, there's a lot of mythology in Roman stuff, but, okay, descendant of Romulus um, and sent by the gods, okay? So when they die, they basically evaluate you and say, if you were a good emperor, then that must be true. You must have been sent by the gods. You are also a god, and we will worship you as a god after you've died, okay? If not, they will strike your name from existence. That happens to Domitian. He was such a nasty character that they, like, they literally, there was a temple for Domitian in the city of Ephesus. And after he died, they determined that he was not a god, he was a false man. And they, you can go there and you see they chiseled his name off the temple. They, they've tried to erase his name from history. He was such a bad emperor. Okay? So, God erased from history. Those are really your two options if you're going to be a Roman emperor upon your death. Caligula says, well, there's no reason to wait for this thing. If I'm going to be worshipped as a god, I might as well do it while I'm alive. And so that's what he does. He has people refer to him as god. um, And he was a very evil, very sick, uh, twisted man. Uh, Claudius takes over from him. And then you have Nero. Nero's the guy, uh, if you've ever heard of a Roman emperor lighting Christians on fire to keep his garden alit. This is Nero. Um, 
He's also uh, an awful man. He, as a matter of fact, Claudius was, oh shoot, I don't remember the exact relation. His, um, he has his mom killed. His mom kills Claudius. He kills his mom, three of his wives, one of whom was pregnant. He's just, an, he's an awful man, an awful man, and um, heralds some firm persecution of Christians. So like his was systemic and awful. Uh, you have, look at 68 to 69. What might be going on uh, in a circumstance where you have Galba, Otho, and Vitellius all in the same year? What might be going on in Rome? Yeah, yeah, civil war. You've got problems, right? Where Rome, is, where Rome is, obviously has issues. Either, either everybody's sickly, everyone's going William Henry Harrison on the, on the thing, or people are fighting, okay? And that's what was happening. You had a lot of, I don't know, wars, rumors of wars, things going on with these three characters um, during 68 and 69. Vespasian takes over 69 to 79, and then you have uh, Titus and Domitian, uh, who is uh, reigning during the time that John is writing this letter, Okay. And there is a quote, that, that's our quote from Pliny the Elder, uh, who described Domitian as the beast from hell who sat in its den licking blood. That's not a Christian, that's just a man who is observing what goes on around. Okay. Go ahead. So while uh, Jerusalem was being sieged, and that whole cataclysmic event with Jesus was warning everyone about, there really was no clear emperor uh, in Rome at the time. It's correct. Okay. Correct. And I think that's some of what Jesus is getting at. Um, it's, it's that uh, at that point in time, the health of the, or the even staying power of the Roman Empire was very much in question um, during the same time that the, that the, <clears throat> the temple is falling. Okay? Um, so yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I put in here a copy of The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, read this. Okay, read this. I don't know. If, I don't think I have time to read this. I'll read, I'll read just like a short section of it for you. But like... Um, yeah, read the, read the Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's, it's, it's very good. He, um, he was under, he knew John, or John taught him. Okay? He becomes the bishop of Smyrna, which is one of our cities, okay? one of our churches. And uh, basically, I'll give you the, the, just the story. So they, they decide that they're going to the, prosecute Polycarp. He's a Christian. He's teaching other people to be Christians, and they want to put an end to that. Uh, they go to arrest him. He's an old man. And uh, one, of the, one of the coolest parts of the story is they, they go to arrest him and say, hey, look, uh, we're here to take you in. And he says, okay, can I pray first? And he ends up praying for like hours for everybody he's ever met in his life. He's just sitting there praying. Like these Roman soldiers, he, he, the, the Roman soldiers come in and he says, hey, feed these fellas, get them some food, make sure they're well fed. And I think it was in preparation because he's going to be praying for a while, but he, he sets them up. Okay, um, they they start taking him in the city, and they're look look old man, just just deny Christ, okay? We don't we, we no one wants to kill you. You're a very nice man, and he said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do the thing you're asking me to. They kick it, they bring him in on a donkey. There's there's some really cool images that follow him that have like a hint of Jesus stuff going on. Um, they he was riding on a cart, and they kicked him off because he refused to like to agree with them. And so now that you have this really old man hobbling in, and they eventually throw him on a donkey. Um, so anyway, he gets he gets. Um, brought in, and they ask him to uh, basically to deny Christ. So let's, let me see if I can start where I want to do here. Um, oh, so as Polycarp entered into the stadium, this is the bottom of page 22, a voice came to him from heaven, and it said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but those of our people who were present heard the voice. And at length, when he was brought up, there was a great tumult, for they heard that Polycarp had been apprehended. When then he was brought before him, the proconsul inquired whether he were the man. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to a denial, saying, Have respect to thine age, and other things in accordance therewith. As it is their wont to say, Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. So, 
the word atheist there is meaning different than what we would use it. We use atheist to mean someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in anything, right? What they mean is someone who doesn't believe in our pantheon of gods. So they're saying polycarps say away with the atheists, which they're using to describe Christians because Christians only believe in one. Okay? So they're saying away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, looked upon the whole multitude of lawless heathen that were in the stadium, and he waves his hand to them, and groaning and looking up to heaven, he said, away with the atheists. Polycarp's got a sharp tongue on him for an old man about to die. He points at the very accusation that they're trying to make at him and says, away with you. I like him. I like him. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, swear the oath, and I will release thee, revile the Christ, Polycarp said, Oh, Polycarp said, Four score and six years have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But on his persisting again and saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, If thou supposest vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as thou sayest, and feignest that thou art ignorant who I am, hear thou plainly, I am a Christian. But if thou wouldst learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. You want to talk about Christ? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's set up some time. Set up some time. Procouncil said, Prevail upon the people. But Polycarp said, As for thyself, I should have held thee worthy of discourse. For you've been taught to render, as is meet, to princes and authorities appointed by God such honor as does us no harm. But as for these, I do not hold them worthy that I should defend myself before them. Whereupon the Procouncil said, I have wild beasts here, and I will throw thee to them, except thou repent. But he said, Call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. He's, just, he's basically refusing to back down. Um, as the story will continue, um, they will say, look, you, um, you're going to do this or we're going to set you on fire. We're going to tie you to a stake and we're going to set you on fire. Uh, he refuses, as I think could be discerned from his earlier examples. They set him on fire and he does not burn. It's very awkward. They see like a weird light around him, kind of, kind of like Stephen when he's being stoned. Um, and they say the Christians look upon him and they see this thing and he's simply not consumed by the fire. And again, that's irritating if you're a guy trying to you know, set another man alight. Um, as you say, the Christian won't die. Now what are we supposed to do? Uh, so there, another guy gets upset and stabs him. Um, and that's, that's basically how Polycarp dies. Um, but it is, a, uh, it is an excellent story. So I, have, I left that in there for you. Um, I don't know how accurate these renderings were that I found off the net. I Googled Revelation, but I did it before the class started, okay? <laughs> All right, moving on. Let's talk about the, genre, the genres of Revelation. What does genre mean? Anybody know? You've heard the word, I'm sure. Isn't it a, a grouping or something like that? Yeah, like a type. A type. type. Yep, yep. So this is, this is one of the ways that we go off course when we're reading Revelation is we ignore the genre, okay? We know the type of book it is. And the, the cool thing is it's, it's an interesting combination of things. There are three different genres associated uh, with Revelation. Um, the first one is, oh, actually, I kind of like this example that's up here at the top. Uh, it says, if I showed you a week's worth of mail that I receive, you could automatically arrange the various pieces in light of the genres, in light of the type. Uh, and in, uh, in those stacks, you would likely find bills, advertisement, magazines, personal letters, church newsletters. Okay, so if you receive, sorry, uh, 26, we're on page 26. Um, so if you received a bill, you would not open it as if it was a personal letter to you with someone trying to impart uh, gracious, friendly welcomes, right? right. You would be like, Mid-American Energy, my friend, who is so harsh to me and doesn't even bother discerning as to how my wife has been, is sending me a bill for money, right? Like, you wouldn't think that because you know what it is. You don't have any reason to ask it to do those types of things. Just like I wouldn't expect a letter from a friend of mine from overseas or something to be uh, a scientific study 
Well, it depends on my friend, I guess. But like, I, I don't have an expectation that it's going to do some things except for be a nice letter for my friend to tell me how he's doing, right? It would be outside of the genre. One of the other things would be um, music. If you listen to classical music, and then all of a sudden you have a guy like thrash metal hip hopping in the middle of the thing, like, I'm not saying that wouldn't be cool. I'm just saying it would be unexpected, right? It, be, it would be interesting because that doesn't fit the genre. You know how classical music is supposed to work. And so it jumps out of that. And actually, that's actually how a lot of cool art comes about, is people crossing genres. The anticipation of, this doesn't fit here, and then it becomes new and interesting. But it's only new and interesting because I had an expectation of what it was supposed to do. Does that make sense? Because So that's how genres work. So there are three different genres within Revelation, and the first one is an epistle, a letter. Okay? And circular letter, I don't know, See, I meant, to, I meant to bind these for you guys, but because I have like five more weeks of stuff, I was going to wait until I could actually get a binder and so you could keep it all together. But like, if you look back at the map, if you still have it, if you look back at the map on this page and look where the cities are at, Patmos is like, you, I know you can't see this at all, um, but Patmos is the island here and then you have the letter, here, I'll just draw it on the board. Patmos is like here and there your churches do this. Okay? You have what John is effectively doing. He knows these churches. He's been there. Planted them, okay? He's familiar with their location. So if you look at the order of which we talked about the churches, you're going to see church here, church here, church here, church here, like this, okay? It's a circular letter. His intention is that it be passed among the churches. What you don't see in that, uh, in those particular maps, is there's a Roman road and trade route that goes right along here, okay? These are specific churches that are along this route, and that's where they would normally be passed, Okay? Pastor John's writing to folk with the intention of it being passed among these churches. Okay? That's why the, the, the order of the churches isn't, uh, isn't just random. Okay? He chose the order of the trade route that, that uh, the letter would be passed on. Okay? Um, it's important that we remember that it's a letter. That's how it reinforces right, where I said we can't take it out of the hands of a first century man because John's writing a letter to a first century person. Okay, so that's where that's one of the things we have to be careful for reinforcement. Just to, to kind of show that it's a letter. Look at his introduction, John to the seven churches, uh, John to the twenty first century man, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then look at the introductions in some of the other New Testament letters, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father. Grace to you and peace. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, that's our diaspora, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay? And John himself, greeting the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. Very much sounds like a standard letter that we would see somewhere else in the New Testament, right? Okay? It's a letter. Uh, closings are the same. Grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay. Standard closing. And this part's important because one of the things that we're going to want to do is like all the weird stuff happens like chapter four. Okay. We're like, oh, oh notes, to, notes to Laodicea. Yeah, yeah, no, it hits us hard. In fact, I've seen multiple churches who will say, we're going to study Revelation. And what they do is they say, we're going to study Revelation one, two, and three. That's what we're going to do. Because that's what applies. Yeah, this is what applies. We, we can learn from the churches. As if these other churches who got the letter from John don't learn anything from 4 to the end. Okay? So the reason I point that out, that there's an ending to it, is the closing revelation of the end of the letter happens in Revelation 22. Okay? He didn't stop the letter at the end of chapter 3. 
It ends in 22, which means the letter that he's writing to the seven churches continues the whole time. We have to leave it in their hands the whole time and treat it as important the whole time. Okay? And note that, that Ephesus read all of it. Mm-hmm. And then it's going right down the line to Smyrna. And Smyrna's reading what was written to Ephesus. Correct. So everybody's knowing everybody else's business. Yes, absolutely. And learn from this and learn from this and learn from this. And Correct. There's an interesting, um, uh, we'll, we'll look at when we look at the churches, but there's a chiasm in there um, with what he de- talk, talks about with the, um, uh, to the different churches. And a chiasm uh, in Jewish, Jewish thinking, uh, we think literally. Um, we like newspapers, we like linear timelines. Give me fact, 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 fact. Okay? Jews expect God, um, their logical thinking is circular. Okay? They expect it to go in circles. And so what a chiasm does, it says, um, here's point A, here's point B, here's point C, it'd be prime A like this. Okay? So that um, in a set of five things, or let's say it basically has to be an odd-numbered set, you would, you would see this matches with this in some way, B matches with that one in some way. And then this, if you're going to think of it this way, is like the tip of the arrow. This is the prime point. Okay? This is, uh, and, and sometimes you'll see it go around, and this is where it becomes circular. But like, this will happen a few times in Revelation where you, you see the him uh, talking about a circumstance that, that's similar, and there's like one that's more important than everything else. Okay? And it's not that these aren't important, but this is what they're pointing to. And the tip of the chiasm um, is kind of your main point of the discussion. And you'll see that a little bit with the churches um, when he's making points about uh, what's going on in the various churches. Okay? And we'll look at that. We're not going to spend a ton of time on chiasm, but they're kind of interesting. Okay, good. Letter? What? Are you muck- hey, hey, if you're going to mock me, do it boldly. <laughs> No, I, I was just I was mentioning in the Middle East they still do that. Oh. <laughs> you're going to sit down and have a conversation with someone. It starts off with light, light chatter, then you get into small talk, then you get to your point, then you get back into more small talk, then you get into closing greetings. I mean, it still, it still it's still goes that way. Pattern. The same thought process is still the way it is. And you know what's cool about this is like if we start to. Um, if we start to think in circular patterns, we're going to notice why all these old, the things that pop up from the Old Testament and in Revelation are important. Because Jews expect that. They expect God to keep acting the same way. And so like, you're going to see the ex, uh, Exodus motif saturates Revelation. Okay, one of the things we're going to try to do is, is we need to reread Exodus and then try to see where we see that popping up. But like, some, of the, um, some of the judgments, it's not the, it's not the, the trumpet, it's not the seals, um, but the bowls. Um, they're, they're Exodus plagues. That's what they are. They're, they're like a, exact replicas of Exodus plagues. Okay? And so they, this is not a surprising... If you're a Jew, you expect God to keep acting the way God always has. And so this doesn't surprise you at all. You, you expect to see that. Uh, okay, good. So it's a letter. Don't lose it, it's a letter. And don't lose it, it's written to someone. It's also for us, but it has to be for them as well. Or first, really. Okay? Good. Um, prophecy. This is definitely prophecy. How do I know that it's prophecy? It says it is. Yeah. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. <laughs> okay? He's opening himself clearly as a letter. This is also definitely prophecy. He says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. Okay? Um, we need to be careful in prophecy. If you guys remember, if you went through um, the end time stuff with me, um, Prophecy is a dangerous word sometimes. We use it dangerously. Okay? When we think prophecy, we think future. Okay? But when the Bible uses prophecy, most of the time, it's not speaking of something in the future. Okay? Most of the time, it's not speaking of something in the future. Um, 
17% of the time, the word prophecy or to prophesy is used in the Bible. It points to the future. That means the other 83%, it does not describe a future event. Um, one of the clean examples that we, we talked about was Matthew 26. They spit on it. This is when, when Christ is, has been arrested. And it says, Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Are they asking him to predict the future? What does yeah, what happened? Okay, that's what they're asking. Um, so here's, here's where we're going to be careful. Is It doesn't mean that it doesn't contain future elements. Like I said, some of the times it is future. But the question is why? Is God just showing off? Does he say, here's what's going to happen because I want you to know that I'm God and I know things. I feel like he's demonstrated he's God in multiple ways. The wow factor of here's what's going to happen in the future, generally in very vague symbolic terms, doesn't seem like the, what he's doing. Okay, He's communicating something else. The point of prophecy okay, is, is to show God's will, to communicate to his people. Here's where you're at. Here's where you're going. Here's who I am. Okay, if, if the word from God, even if it is the future, it demonstrates what God will do. And through that, I know who God is. He's revealing his character to us. Okay, so we got to be careful when we see prophecy, we can't immediately jump to the future. It's one of the risks that we have in this book is acting like that you can just jump it ahead. And that's what it must be about. And remember uh, when John said in Revelation 1, 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. John thinks prophecy is something you can obey. Make sense? That's where we've got to be careful with prophecy. If it's, if it's totally just something that happens in the future, why is John asking us to obey it? It, do, it simply doesn't make any sense. He has to mean something else by it. Can I obey something? Can I um, bend to it? The, the word obey is interesting because um, it's like uh, if, I, if I'm going somewhere and I see the moon and the moon is kind of the guard guides my trajectory, and, or let's go with the North Star. It's a better example. Um, so by heeding or obeying the North Star or using it as my guide and following it because that's where I want to go. Okay, that, that's kind of the root of that word obey. And so if, if this is revealing that to, from God, can I obey that? Yes, I can. Okay, I can obey God's will. I can obey God's direction. I can obey God who says, this will take you in the ways that I want you to go. Heed that. I can obey that. What I can't obey is a prediction. This is what's going to happen to the world. Okay, I'll obey that. So we, we have to let John speak in context here. He thinks it's something that we can obey. Because there, there's no definitive, uh, definitive way to obey something that hasn't happened yet. Correct. And here's what's going to happen. As we, all this gray area, that, that leaves all of the room to do whatever you're going to do, however you're going to do it, just to get to the end result. They're just making stuff up to get where they think they need to go. Right. One of the things you're going to see is when, even when we revealed something in the future, John's reaction is going to be, is this calls for the perseverance of the saints. Okay. In light of this, this is what you're going to do. Okay. That's, that's the part that he's calling us to when he says that the, I, I'm, the prophet brings a message from God. Okay? And so a prophecy is that message. Can it be future stuff? Definitely. Definitely. Is it always future stuff? No. Absolutely not. Go ahead. So, so just to make that real simple for my brain right now. So yep. If I'm talking to somebody, because I do know somebody that writes on Facebook daily about the prophecy and how the world's going to end soon and all this. Yep. The, the word prophecy means right here just basically message. I mean, to put that in kind of simple... Yes. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this message. Sure. This yes. I think that's, that's a safe way to say it, yes. Yeah. The, basically, who, who, um, it's the word from God. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's because that's, that's how we always, to be fair, that's how we always talk about it, right? And it's the interesting part of it um, because we feel like we may have lived everything up to this point. John just seems to talk about it differently. And we looked at some Old Testament examples too where what the prophets were bringing wasn't, here's what's going to happen to you. It's, it's, um, it's a rebuke basically from God's trying to, commit, to communicate either something about himself or how he wants his people to be. And they seem to use that under the same word, same description of prophecy. Um, okay, so uh, note on interpretation. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but there are variations in some of your um, in some of your Bibles on some of this wording. Um, if you guys, if you didn't go through the um, end times class, get the Blue Letter Bible app. Okay, pick up the Blue Letter Bible. Well, interesting. You should say that because I'm looking up the prophecy just to just to pull up the Greek of it translations. And that kind of stuff um, used in the New Testament of the utterance of the Old Testament prophets. So it's still pointing. Yeah. Still pointing to the Old Testament. I don't know why. Yeah. The prediction of events relating to Christ's kingdom and its speedy triumph, but that's under the guise of the Old Testament. So get, um, get that app, uh, and the reason I want you to get that app is because um, we can look at some of the underlying Greek, um, which becomes important at some times, because uh, translation is, is way more of an art than a science, okay? Your trans, um, I do not consider any particular translation holy, okay? Don't hear me, that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is, is that there are people um, that uh, it's hard to not let what you think influence how you translate, okay? And you're going to see that in a few spots. Frankly, most of the time I see it, it shows up in the newest NIV, <laughs> um, is where things start to get a little bit weird. Um, but just, just so you know, it depends like where you're coming from. Um, if, if you believe what you believe is correct, then your translation makes a lot of sense, okay? so, which is what I would do. So it's not, a, it's not a knock on the translation. I still use the NIV at times, so like, don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is, is like, looking at the underlying Greek word is sometimes important. Okay? So in this example, and this is on uh, midway through 27, on the note on interpretation, um, the NIV renders this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So what the King James Version will render as obey, um, what the ESV will render as keep, okay? um, the NIV renders as take to heart, which has no, it has no teeth to it, right? That's just know it. Now, if I think that prophecy is primarily a future event, that makes a lot of sense. Remember this thing, okay? But the underlying Greek word, it's uh, tereos, and it's not that, okay? It's not that. As a matter of fact, the NIV renders that word as um, keep or heed every other time in Revelation it uses it, um, where it comes up and things that Jesus is saying, okay? And you can trace that. If you remember on the Blue Letter Bible, like you can pull up the thing um, and then choose the underlying Greek word, and it'll show you every other time it's used in the Bible. And sometimes it'll use multiple, like Greek's just a different language than ours, right? So it might be used three or four different ways, but just it's a way to trace it to kind of vet it out, okay? I don't consider your NIV Bible dangerous, okay? Um, most, there's a few translations that might be iffy, but most, most Bibles that are on the shelves are good Bible translations for people that love Jesus, okay? But we will look at some Greek words now and then because there are a few twists that will, if someone were to point back to and say this uh, and to say that, this is definitely a future prognostication. Like, I might, I might rely on that if it was take heart. But I have to think of it differently if it's actually obey or heed. That make sense? Okay. Um, okay. 
Even when prophecy is pointing to the future, it does so to demonstrate how we to act in the present. So I pulled this quote. This is from Second Peter. Um, and he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He was talking about um, basically in the end. Um, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's, um, Paul will do that um, in Thessalonians. Uh, John does it here. Peter will do that. If the times when they talk about what looks like sec- Christ's second coming, they're going to say, in light of these things, now then how shall we live? Okay? Every time they were talking about something that happens in the future, it was to inform how they act in the present. Not just for random information to say, okay, we're good. Okay? Sometimes it does, sometimes it does inform by if I think that God ultimately has this under control, that the people that need to be vindicated will be vindicated. The, the, the punishment that needs to be dealt out will be dealt out with. I might live in with more abandon. That's true. But so the, the knowledge is still good, but it's meant to inform how I am today. Because the truth is, is like what happens 50 years from now is still God's. A hundred years from now is God's. How he ends the world is still God's. If I, if I trust God to say he is God and he will do as he pleases, what he pleases is good. And so whether it's 50, 100, 2,000 years from now, I don't really care. Okay, it's God's. He will handle it correctly. All right. So the reason those things help me, though, is it informs me how I live today in light of those things. Okay, good. Finally, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. This is our third genre. It's a legit genre. How do I know this is an apocalyptic genre? It's the first word in the book. That's what it is. Okay? John does that very thing. Okay? He's given away all three genres, so we don't have to wonder and be like, well, are these just literary people who say things like, it's apocalyptic and you should read it this way. No, John is doing this for us. He's made our job very easy. Um, the very first word is... It's uh, apocalypsis, or uh, what are the, how do the Strong's guy say it? I was listening to the... That's the other thing the Blue Letter Bible does, is you can click the button and he'll, like say the Greek word for you, because I'm dangerous Greek. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, epicolysis. Uh, um, so, so anyway, it's the very first word of the book. Okay? Um, the Latin for that is revelatio. That's where we get revelation. Okay? But uh, the very first word he uses is apocalypse. Um, apocalyptic may be broadly defined as a literary medium which enables its audience to understand divine truths which may have hitherto remain hidden in secret. Apocalypse writing also tends to contain otherworldly beings and heavy symbolism. Apocalypse. That, that was, it was apocalypse. I did that in front of the mirror ten times to affirm the core of my ego, and I failed miserably. You can do it, Ben, I said. That's why we pay the Strong's man. He does it on the app. <laughs> I wonder, what, I wonder what kind of money that guy made. I mean, he's every Greek word in the Bible he recorded, and twice. I bet he feels good about himself. <laughs> I do not. All right. Um, so uh, our definition of apocalypse, um, we said otherworldly beings, heavy symbolism. It's designed to bring comfort to an oppressed, to an oppressed people. Um, in order to speak about the deeper spiritual realities and the battle between good and evil, they communicated through these symbols that literally permeate the apocalypses. It was a language that would have been understood by the faithful. Here's one of the things we have to be careful with. Um, we, had, we had the same problem going through Matthew 24 and 25, which is he's talking in ways that are, we're not used to. Okay? Like we don't really deal in apocalypses unless, unless it's in a story that is completely untrue. We don't, we don't expect to be have like divine things communicated through us through otherworldly beings. We want to be able to stick it on the Orson Scott card part of the shelf and just say, Ender's game, done. We don't have to deal with this broadly. 
Okay? That's, that's not how we deal with things. And so is, is this a medium in which they would have understood some of the symbolism and some of the, the multiple truths that are going on? Yes. They're not freaked out by otherworldly beings. We say four-headed lion, we're out. Okay? They say four-headed lion, they're like, well, I could buy that. What else God going to do? All right? So is it something they would have recognized? I, th- I think the answer is yes. And so we have, to tr- we have to work to digest that in ways that they wouldn't. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes we have this impression that, that we should be able to read the Bible. And if we have to put any thought into it, or if we have to consider context, or if we have to think about how they would have thought about it, that it must be wrong. It shouldn't take that amount of work. But it's simply not true. Okay, that's not, it's not an accurate thought process. Um, here's, here's some other examples of apocalyptic writing. Uh, one comes from Daniel 7. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. After this, uh, there's a space in here. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That thing will creep you out, will sneak out from under your bed, tear you asunder, and devour you. Okay, that's a creepy looking item. Now, is it literally a beast with the horns and the eyeballs on the thing? No. No, see, like, we know that, right? But some, for some reason, when we come to Revelation, we think, oh yeah, that's a legit beast. There's a bunch of legit beasts around, and they, they, got, they got a bunch of heads and eyes all over the place. And yet, because it's the end of the world, we're like, definitely, eyes everywhere. I believe it. Okay? Okay? Now, can God do what He wants? Yeah. He wants to make a guy with eyes all over himself? Sure. God's possible to do something like that. But in light of how we can read Daniel and be like, we really don't think that's a legit beast. It's describing something, which, you know, Dave covered in the Daniel class you can actually see all that stuff fulfilled. It's great. Okay? But like, we don't have to jump out of context for Revelation either. We don't have, just have to say, we're willing to accept whatever's on the page as literal truth. There's a lot of discussion about Revelation and say, do you take it symbolically or figuratively or literally? Now the truth is, is like, one is not a virtue. If I tell you something that is not literal, if I use a symbol and you don't interpret it as a symbol, you failed. Right? There's not virtue in saying, it's got to be, I have to read it literally. I think we are reading it literally because John literally used a symbol. Okay? That's where we're going to use that correctly. Um, Yes, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, using Daniel as a template, a lot of times these sorts of strange symbols and beasts and whatnot would pop up. And then, like three paragraphs later, Daniel would say, what was that that I just saw? And whoever it is that revealed it to him, be it an angel or whatever, gave that, him the explanation, oh, that beast, that was this particular nation. Right. Beast. And so he's basically given, here is the key to understanding this thing. Yeah. And that's the template that we kind of default back to when we go to apocalyptic scripture is we kind of have to do it the same way that we handle Daniel or at least the way that Daniel was instructed to handle it. Right. We need to follow the same sort of Well, and the seven churches have that information as well. They know Daniel. Correct. They know Daniel. They know Daniel. Yeah. And so if you've already read the book of Daniel, perhaps you don't need, by the way, here's what the lampstands are. Here's what the bowls are. Right. Here's what... You don't need all that because you already you've already got the back knowledge from Daniel. Exactly, and so those lampstands are a good example. So the lamp, there's John will describe lampstands, and they take us back to Zechariah. And here's what I think: Zechariah, 
Who reads Zechariah? I have no idea what you're talking about. Right? But yeah, that's the deal. They do. They do. These aren't crazy to them. Yeah, it's crazy to us because we're lazy and we don't read the Old Testament. And so we think, what is all this stuff? And, and John says, uh, this is how people know Jesus, as far as I'm concerned. They know the Old Testament. These churches that I planted, that, I, that I've mentored and taught from, yeah, they know the Old Testament as well. Like, we're kind of in the bogey spot here, and we're like, well, it can't be Zechariah because we don't know Zechariah. How self-centered can that be? Right? right? I don't get the, it's not an Exodus thing. I don't really read Exodus. Okay, this is our, this is our problem. <laughs> okay, so we, have to, so we have to take that back. We have to understand what he might be pointing to. Okay? Um, other, I, I gave you another quote here. This is from 4th Ezra. Um, this is uh, apocryphal literature. So, you'll, so if you have a Catholic Bible, this will be in here. Um, we wouldn't consider this scripture, but it doesn't mean it's not historically informative. Okay? I would put the same thing like the 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Um, there's things that show up in the Catholic Bible. Um, one of the things that Catholic theology does better than we do is they, they actually look at history better. Okay? Um, I don't believe in creeds, really, but like, Creeds, but they're not implicitly bad. Okay? They're not holy, but they're not wrong. They're statements of belief. Okay? Um, understanding church history, understanding what's going on around you, understanding what our church fathers believed, because those are also my community. I just happen to be separated by 1,800 years from them. Okay? So as, as much as I like, uh, I like to set a Bible on the ground and say, this is my statement of faith, deal with that. I don't, like, <laughs> I don't have to print a bookmark of all the things I believe. I just hand you the Bible. But like, I also, we also still live in a Christian community of people that were wise and loved Jesus and at sometimes were closer to the circumstances that created this, and we've got to be careful about writing that stuff off as if it's not helpful, okay? So, um, do I think 4th Ezra is scripture? No, I wouldn't, not necessarily, but does it help us inform what's going on in their mind at the time? Yeah, and so let me read a little bit uh, of it for you. It says, On the second night I had a dream, and behold, there came up from the sea an eagle that had twelve feathered wings and three heads. And I looked, and behold, he was spread his wings over all the earth, and all the winds of heaven blew upon him. And the clouds were gathered about him. And I looked, and out of his wings there grew opposing wings. Come on. Wings and then wings that are against the wings? That's weird. That's weird. Sounds like Civil War. Twelve, yeah. See, Herrick's all over on it, right? Wings fighting against wings. You've got war problems. You've got 12 tribes on either side fighting against each other. That's, that's problematic. He's got three heads, Herrick. What? How do you sleep at night? I, I That's what I'm wondering. There, you, there are three leaders. <laughs> well, hold on a second. And I looked, and I was wing three uh, grew opposing wings, but they became little puny wings. That's rough. That's a bummer. But his, but his heads, <laughs> his heads were at rest. Not his head is at rest. Why would he have twelve? Three heads. Three heads. They're all sleeping. <laughs> They're taking a snooze. So there's no central leadership. Uh, some but wait, the middle head was larger than the other heads, but it was also resting. Okay, and I looked, and behold, the eagle flew with his wings to reign over the earth and over those who dwell in it. And I saw how all things under heaven were subjected to him, and no one spoke against him, not even one creature that was on the earth. And I looked, and behold, the eagle rose upon his talons and uttered a cry to his wings. I like how he talks. I talk to my arms. We're heading out, boys. (laughs) Saying, do not all watch at the same time. Let each sleep in his own place (laughs) and watch in his turn, but let the heads be reserved for the last. So it's a cry for peace. During some kind of civil war, one side rises up, but it's apparently not as strong, and the three leaders don't want to get involved. Or they're not paying any attention, and, and it's happening, and now, it, yeah. Or God just made a creepy eagle. Or he made a creepy eagle. Or See, here's, here's what we're going to do with Revelation. We're going to say, creepy eagle, possibility, but not likely. Okay, we're going to go with the probably means something else, <laughs> not 
creepy eagle. Possibility. Not like that. Okay? Wise people love Jesus, still love the creepy eagle. Okay? Have you seen the knife-wielding crab on Facebook? I mean, that's, that's, some, that's some Jesus freaky stuff right there. Here's the thing. I think Facebook is one of the two witnesses in Revelation, but <laughs> we're going to get to that. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Uh, so... So let me tell you this. So 4th Ezra was written uh, sometime between um, 1 B.C. and maybe like 0 is A.D., okay? Somewhere in there. So here's the question. Apocalyptic literature, I said, um, points to help an oppressed, to encourage an oppressed people. What was going on during the time of Daniel 7? Anybody know? Bath? No? Trying to help. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> the nation had just been destroyed. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, the nation had just been, I mean, decimated, taken into captivity. Okay? Would we consider them oppressed people? Sure. Yeah. Do they, do they need to be encouraged that if, if uh, the land that God had given them, okay, that God had said, this is your land, you are my people, I gave you this land, and now a different nation had come and taken them out of it, do they need reminded of who God is? That they are still God's people, that He is still in control, and they need to be encouraged that all this is under His doing? Yes. Yes, they do. Does Daniel 7 do that? Yeah. I mean, we didn't print the whole thing here, but yes. That's what Daniel 7 is meant to do. Uh, and he uses, the, he uses these otherworldly beings to kind of symbolize what's going on. Okay? Um, in, I said, 4th uh, fourth, fourth Ezra, or if, I think it's in, your, in the Bible, it's like the Catholic Bible, it's 2nd Ezra's. Um, but but are, they, are the Jews in turmoil at that time period, at the turn of the century, at the turn of the, <laughs> what's the right word? The turn of time. <laughs> the end of the B.C.s, moving to the A.D.s. Okay? Are, the, are the Jews still oppressed as far as they're concerned? Yes. Yes, they are. The, the, um, recently, the, um, the abomination of desolation, or one of, one of them, if we're going to describe it in multiple ways, has occurred. Okay? The temple has been defiled. They are still, as far as the Jews are concerned, they're still in exile. They have never been brought back. Their, their promised land has not been returned. They're still, they were under a Greek, the Babylonians, Assyrians, they're under a Greek government, they're under a Roman government, and they're still there. They're not home. Okay? Are they still an oppressed people? Yes. Yes. At John's time, when all the apostles are dead, we see that there is persecution in Christianity. Okay? Um, the churches that were started in Asia Minor, John is about to die, or is at least exiled, and they don't know whether to run into him again. Okay? And they are being um, drawn in to Roman society at their own peril. Okay? Either because they've accepted these things or gone along with them um, when they shouldn't. Okay? Do they need encouragement? Yeah. Yeah. So does apocalyptic literature make sense here? I think it does. Okay? I think it does. And I, what I think it does is it pulls some of the things that creep us out about Revelation and it gets them out of the rafters a little bit. And says, does he have a thousand eyes? He might have a thousand eyes. But how about he just, he sees, he's all seeing. Having a bunch of eyes means all seeing. Having a bunch of horns means power. Okay? What do horns mean? And so like, this is where the Old Testament will help and that's why I put that long list of junk at the end of your packet. Okay? To try to help us with where things like this might be. Okay? Um, but apocalyptic literature uses those symbols because they're trying to communicate on multiple levels. He's not telling one story, he's telling a thousand stories. And here's the thing, there's going to be places where we want specificity. Who are the witnesses? Who's riding the horses? Okay? These are things we want to know that John doesn't seem to care about. He's not a dummy, right? This is John we're talking about. A guy seems, he seems to have a lot of literary skill. He's very good with the turn of phrase. 
seems to be able to pastor people, love Jesus and all this business. And we're like, but John, what's the name of the guy on the second horse, though? Or you said there were two witnesses. Why won't you just tell us who the two witnesses are? Maybe it doesn't matter. Right? Let's, let's, maybe we'll give John the benefit of the doubt here and say he's telling a bigger story than what we care about. Maybe we need to care about something different. Maybe we need to ask the right types of questions and so that we're getting out of the, his description what he wants. Because I assume that if guided by the Holy Spirit, which is, he also says as part, in Revelation, right? He's in the Spirit, and this is where these things are coming. All right? Either the Holy Spirit left it out, John ignored the Holy Spirit, or maybe we don't need to care about it so much. And that's, that's what we need to address then. So like, if I don't have to, if the specific isn't what I need to know, then what's the broad? What's the macro thing that I need to know? What's John actually trying to communicate? And I swear to you, all, you put all these things together, it will open up Revelation. Okay? It becomes a, a way easier book to understand because we're not fighting over the wrong questions. But then, I don't know how to ask the right questions. So now we have to go back through it and say, if what I want to know, I don't have to care about, then Jesus help me, what do I want to know? <laughs> What, what is it that I, sh- that I need to know here? What is it that they needed to know? And then how, does, then how now shall I live? And Revelation will do that. It's a very cool book. But we've got to pull some of that stuff out of the rafters. Okay? All right. How, how we doing, Buva? You my bell man? Holy cats. I, I'm going to need, a, I'm gonna need a, a, some sort of hint when I'm getting this close. All right. Uh, I provided a bunch of stuff. I, hey, this is a sweet picture of uh, what the throne of God would look like. It really stinks in black and white. I mean, it really takes the shine off it when you print it in black and white. Um, but this was an example where John describes the throne room. He's in the throne room of God. Uh, and he says, um, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there... Sorry, this is page 29. Um, throne, uh, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now here's... I've seen someone render this. With like a... It's like a... A carnelian with arms on it and like weird vests worth of jewels and things. Now, here's the thing. If I find myself in the throne room of God, would it surprise me to, to find out that I'm not able to quite articulate what's going on there? That the words that English has provided me is maybe not quite enough for me to specifically describe the throne room of the almighty creator. It wouldn't surprise me if that were the case, right? So what is John doing? He's stretching language to a breaking point. You know, like, it, think of it as, um, in fact, when I was studying for this, um, I found multiple, like, full commentaries that are, Revelation is a song, okay? And then breaks it down on how we can understand it as, a, as an orchestra with a bunch of things coming together, okay? Revelation is a painting. I like the painting um, because it, it gets rid of some of our uh, problem with seeing things on a timeline. But, like, if John's trying to paint a picture, all right, what does it mean if I'm going to say that had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian? What are those? They're jewels, Radiant, precious jewels. Okay, does that give me an idea of what it's like in the throne room of God? Sure, it does. Am I am I failing to read the Bible responsibly because I don't think literally that the Almighty is sitting and He looks like a jewel? I don't think so. I think we're being safe here as an apocalyptic literature, looking at symbols and saying, "What is this trying to communicate?" Okay, in the throne room of God. Do I need to know exactly what the Almighty looks like? I like the scripture's really gone to, to great extent not to describe this. <laughs> so I don't think we're going to get uh, you know, an uh, artist's sketch in Revelation. But he's communicating something about who God is, what his, what his essence is like. And I think that's cool. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, the few other pieces of, um, of interesting notes here. Look at, scroll down, I said eyes, crowns, white garments. Hey, yeah, look out for naked people in Revelation and compare them to people in white garments. 
Look what people are wearing. John's extremely uh, restrict, uh, excuse me, descriptive. Okay? It matters what people are wearing. It matters what colors are happening. Numbers are very cool. Okay? He's doing a lot in here. Um, let's look at some, again, trying to, to parse out this literal thing. In Revelation 5, 5 to 6, it said, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What did he call it? A lion. lion. What did he see? A lamb. lamb. Shall we yell at John? We must be literal, John. We must do literal things. Okay? We have to to give it room to breathe. Okay? Now, if I say, hey, I saw a lion, and he looks, and we have a slain lamb, and I think, oh, we got problems, literal things. He's given bad facts. I don't know if I can trust John. Maybe this is all wrong. Paul's a misogynist. Jesus never died, and I decide I don't worship anything. Now, that's a, that's a wide tangent. But like... <laughs> Are you kidding? That happens like every day. <laughs> but here's the thing. Is, is that, that's where we have to be careful how we read things. Okay? I'm asking too much of the text to say, you have to give me literal descriptions. It's not what he's doing. You don't say, there's a lion. Now, see, you have a capitalized, right? But in, do you guys remember what I said about the original Greek manuscripts? They were all caps, no spaces, no titles, no periods, no punctuation. Okay, so like that, it's capitalized here, Lion of the Tribe of Judah. We would say, oh, must be Jesus, got a capital L. But like your lovely translators did that for you. Like if you're reading this and you're in Smyrna, that's not capitalized, right? So you hear lion, they say slain lamb, and they, they don't go crazy because they get it. He's, it's obvious it has to be a symbol or John's a nut or the Holy Spirit's batty. I'm not willing to say two and three. Okay, it's got to be simple. It's got to be simple. And, the, and a, a, a lamb standing has been slain. You ever seen a lamb slain who walking about standing there symbol it's gotta be gotta be okay um what does john say has oh what does john say the seven horns and seven eyes are he says with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out to all the earth he even told you what the symbol was okay is it literally seven eyes literally seven horns or he's, he told you what it was. It's the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. I actually think that seven, is, that, uh, seven spirits is also symbolic. I, I think that's the Holy Spirit. But we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay? But see... Why isn't it 14? What do you mean 14? Well, seven horns and seven eyes are not the same thing, so why isn't it 14? Uh, uh, I, think, I think you're talking... Oh, right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, so like th- that would be, un- it's asking something to the text that the text isn't offering. Right. Yeah, exactly. And how do you turn seven, seven eyes and seven horns into like one seven spirits, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It could be two different descriptions of the same thing. Right. But if you're reading it literally like right. most people do, then, and you're going to try to poke holes in it and say that it's bunk and you can't trust it and yeah. you go off the rails and now I'm just not going to believe any I those are the types of people that are in my life. Right, right. That are, you know, doing the math and that doesn't add up. And so that's one of the things that where we need to be careful is that I give these examples because we're going to run into spots where we're going to want to say, no, that's, gotta, that's literal. Definitely. That's definitely a literal thing. But John, he, he doesn't seem to be doing that. We need to, if, if we're going to say this particular part of Revelation is literal, why? Why do, we, why do we get to say that this section is a literal thing that is going to happen in a specific place in time when the other times that he's talking about these things, that's not the case? It may be true, but we need to figure that out. We can't just say, I like the sound of this, I'm going to take that as literal, when John seems to predominantly be using symbols to communicate bigger truths than what we're asking. Okay? Well, I got five minutes, Booba. What do we got? You 
Ten. Holy cats, I won't take that many. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Um, okay, so there's a hint on um, symbols. If, you're gonna, if you don't know what a symbol is, okay, check the context of the passage that you're in. This is uh, page 30 um, that you're in and other symbols around it. Okay? I don't mean to be like emo artist vibe on you, but like, what does it feel like? <laughs> if, you, if, you see, if you're looking at a throne and it's got glowing jewels and shining things, like what's the, what is that? if that was a painting, what would it feel like? What would it be communicating to you? Okay? So, um, so give that a shot. See if you can get a rough idea of what you think it might be doing. Uh, secondly, see how that symbol is used elsewhere in Revelation. It doesn't have to be the same, but a lot of times it is. Horns are almost always power. It's indicating something of power. He'll switch. He'll do like seven horns, 12 horns. Both, both are complete power. They're not any measure different, actually. Okay? And I put something about numbers in there. Try to read that because uh, numbers are going to be important. Numbers are also a weird sticking point for people when we come about. Your, your average uh, Jehovah's Witness has got to deal with numbers with you. We're like, there's 144,000 folk that get to be up in this joint, and then you stink and you get to be this joint. And here's the deal is I wouldn't proselytize. That's the thing. If there was a limited number of dudes, I wouldn't be telling others because I would want to make sure that I'm in the... I feel like they're not thinking, <laughs> but that's their deal, not mine. Um, let's see. Number three. Um, oh, see. <laughs> number three. See how that symbol is used in the Old Testament. That's our big one. Okay. Remember, that's their context. We need to make it ours. Um, so see how it's in the Old Testament. Most of the misunderstanding of Revelation occurs because we don't know the Old Testament. For example, when Revelation talks locusts, if we refer back to the Old Testament, we'll see that locusts are used to describe invading armies. Does it have to be demon locusts? Coming out people with red eyes and taking over the land. No, oh, locusts are all-consuming, and, and, and they generally tend to be pursuing God's people. Okay? That means something big, and it can mean different things, frankly, for different eras of time on who that might be. Okay? He's not locking into something, but like Old Testament strong, you have locusts invading armies. And uh, In fact, the, the ESV um, study notes will say, we think they're demon locusts. I'm like, well, maybe. But if I give, can I give the Old Testament reference a spin and see does that make sense in our context that's and I, I here's don't hear me wrong i'm not trying to be safe here okay i'm not trying to say what can i what's the rational answer because god is not a rational being he'll do as he pleases that's not what i'm saying but what i'm saying can we read this well okay in the con in the right context and understand what he's saying i don't it, you can have the wildest interpretation of revelation and i might agree to it because again god does what he wants but like is it i'm, is it, I'm sure that's not what i want Am I, I'm sure I'm not describing this in a way that I want it to be as opposed to how the Bible or how John is describing it. Okay, uh, last thing, I provided a, uh, other considerations. Um, this, the Revelation is revealing truths, not events. Um, care, do not do a timeline. This is why I like painting. This is why I like it as a painting. So like when, he, when you start seeing, we're going to get into some of the judgments, and we're going to say, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. That doesn't necessarily imply a movement in time. Okay. One of the things I'll tell you is, is there's, you see four horses okay, at the start of the first set of, uh, set of judgments in the seals, and I, they're not coming at different times. They're coming at the same time. If I'm looking at a painting and I'm focusing on different parts of the painting, I, I would say, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw, and it's all in the same backdrop. You understand what I'm saying here? It doesn't have to be a progressive timeline. What we want to do is make this, this a, a delineated thing where we expect to see event, 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 event. Okay? I don't think that's what he's doing. He's painting pictures here. Okay? He's, pre- he's showing a landscape of which we can understand something. So we'll walk through those. There are, it's not that time can't move. Okay? But if we walk into it, um, look for the truths that it's pointing to, not necessarily specific events that it's describing. Okay?
Um, second, embracing recapitulation. This is where the word recap comes from, meaning saying the same thing over again, for either, generally for a different purpose. Okay? Telling, uh, I think the, 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 there's actually four um, judgments, but he only goes into detail on three. Trumpets, seals, bowls, and then there's thunders, and he doesn't describe those. Okay, hey, if you're creating a roadmap for the end times, you don't have the thunders. How are you going to create a roadmap? God, God locked it up. You don't have a roadmap. Okay? Okay. Am I doing five? Shoot. I just did the ha 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 voice, and I was wrong with my, with my fingers? Boy, that's embarrassing. Oh, no, it's, you're talking about something else. I see what you're saying. I'm with you. Okay. Sorry. I got to not make that voice, though. It really makes me look like a fool. All right. So, four, four judgments. Okay, four judgments. Three of them, I think they're talking about the same thing. Okay? I think they're talking about the same thing. We'll look at them, though, and we'll see if we can come to the, if you guys come to the same conclusion. Does it mean something different to different yes. populations? He's talking, yes. Yeah. They're, they're focused on different well, groups of people. You know what I mean? Is that it's audience specific. Yeah. It's what? Each one's to a different audience. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so we'll read through those and we'll see, like, I'm, there's people who disagree on that, right? But like, what it seems like all of them lead to the end of the world. So like, I don't think the, I don't think the, the world is ending. In fact, the world's going to end like 12 times if, you're, if we're event oriented. We're going to be like, third of the scars fell. Yeah, right. It's done. You don't need half of the stars to fall. A third fall, the thing's over. Okay, so we don't need to wait for the thing to amp up. But he's telling you that the story is escalating and, and my, my recapitulations are continuing. You're going to see this from a different angle and you'll see that they, they amp up. More stars are falling, more people are dying. Okay, you're getting a 360 degree view of a single thing, okay, which is God's judgment. Okay, so, so we'll look for that, but em- embrace the thought that he could be telling the same story three times from different angles for different purposes, not necessarily that he's telling event, 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 event over and over and over again. Okay. Uh, focus on the forest. Although we have the tools to decipher the symbols and details, don't get caught up in them. Okay. If we go line by line, and this is where uh, that, that um, list I gave you is going to be a blessing and a curse. Okay. Paintings aren't necessarily meant to be taken in like this with a magnifying glass. Okay. I'm not saying it won't hold up to study scrutiny. Okay. But what I'm saying is, is that don't miss the forest for the trees here. Okay. If he's communicating a broad thing, we can't get lost on, yeah, but what does this exact symbol mean? I don't think that's what he's doing. Okay? I'm more than willing to talk through those with you, but be careful that we don't get so caught up that we miss the broad picture that he's painting. Okay? Uh, ask the right questions. Um, again, if, we're, if we care who the second rider on the horse is and John does not, I don't think that's the right question. Um, I think reading through it will help us ask the right questions because I don't know all the right questions. Um, and lastly, and I'll re- reemphasize this and I'll let you go, we've got to let the, let the text change us. And I don't just mean what you think about the end times. I mean, what does my tomorrow look like now that I've read the revelation to these people? How do I see God? How do I see me? How do I understand his character? That kind of stuff. Okay? Any questions for me before we stop for tonight? Do you have any homework? Um, read, uh, please read Revelation once. I would recommend reading it from the packet, okay, without the stuff. Make, make notes all over the place. What is this? What is this? What is this? That's cool. That's that, at least you're engaging with the text. Um, I would try to read the Martyrdom Polycarp because it's good. Because it's good. Um, and then my guess is we will get through, hopefully, Revelation 3 um, next week. So the introduction and then Revelation 2 and 3. So, so you can special emphasis on that part. Okay. All right, thanks guys for putting up with the long introduction. We'll dig into the text next week. Thanks for coming.